Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. We are recording today in front of a crackling fire in Queenstown, New Zealand. And it is a beautiful day in the summertime here. There are some blue skies and in the foreground, a beautiful mountain that's dusted in white snow. I'm on my days off from guiding in the Milford Sound and I'm really grateful to be sitting here with these two adventurers, Lisa Sackville and Mike Graney. They have both been guiding for over a decade and today we're featuring both of them, but I'm interviewing them individually. Lisa Sackville was born in Issaquah, outside of Seattle, and grew up in the forest there, along the lake shore, before it was developed and the shoreline was fenced off. Lisa perhaps gets her adventurous nature from her dad. He took her sailing as a kid. The real hit, though, came after she survived being locked in a flash freezer for three and a half hours and survived without losing a limb. She did lose eight toes, though, and she realized her life needed a realignment. Lisa ended up living in London, working in the Hard Rock Cafe and then ski guiding in Switzerland. Lisa has been guiding over 15 years. She has guided on the Zambezi River, rivers in New Zealand, Alaska, South America, Australia, as well as Canada as a whitewater guide, as well as an ice climbing guide and instructor. Lisa, first of all, Thank you so much for joining me here on the trail less traveled in front of the crackling fire in your home, drinking a cup of tea. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. My first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up outside of Seattle in a small hamlet called Issaquah, which is now not such a small hamlet. It is the neighboring suburb to the home of Microsoft, which employs over 30,000 people. So it's not so small anymore. But when I was there, it was just a tiny cow town. And I grew up on the shores of Lake Sammamish, where we spent countless summers having unsupervised play always water-based. And one of the defining memories I have of my childhood, as far as adventure goes, is that I was the only girl. My brothers are boys, my cousins are boys, and for some reason, my whole neighborhood, they were all boys. There was one girl, one of the families had a little sister, but she was too young to play with us. So summers were spent sailing and canoeing and swimming and adventuring around in boats. And winter, ooh, we would always hope for snow. It didn't snow very often in Seattle, but we would hope for snow so that we could build jumps and sled. And But we had bicycle gangs. I was on the younger side of the neighborhood, so I was on a big wheel. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all boys. And I just, uh, 
I just had to roll. I had to swim faster. I had to run faster. I had to really pedal my big wheel to keep up with those boys. <laughs> Looking back now, it seems to have been the beginning of a trend. Your father, it sounds like he was quite a sailor and, and took you on many regattas and one in particular a race from Hawaii to Seattle. So how did your dad influence your adventurous upbringing as far as water and sailing is concerned? Yeah, my dad was an adventurer. The adventure in his life was passed on to him from his own parents. So his parents were avid snow skiers and water skiers, and they would have passed that on to my dad and his brother. And it was such a big part of his life and so much, I think, a part of his sanity. He worked a normal job behind a desk for decades, but when he wasn't working, he was really able to shine and we were really able to see a side of him that nobody else saw. So he taught us to ski, he was a ski instructor. He volunteered so that we could learn to ski and we all skied together and I think that was important for our relationships early on. And even though we got faster than him when we were little, we were probably 10 or 12 by the time we were able to ski faster than him, which of course was a really big deal when you're little. We never, and yet still to this day, we n I will never ski with the grace or style that he skied with. He was an elegant athlete. Sailing was one of his many passions and he instilled that in us at an early age. It was really more us and dad, even though my parents were, of course, married and happy. My mom would get terribly seasick and didn't know how to swim. So although she was a reluctant participant in a lot of our childhood adventures, they were certainly more fueled and driven by my dad's sense of adventure. Your dad took you on a race from Hawaii to Seattle. I was wondering how old you were when that happened, and maybe you could take us back to that time on the water. It was a race, so it wasn't actually all about fun or a holiday at all. It only took us five days. At that time, it would have been before autopilot and that, so it really was exciting because mostly I was 10, and it was past my bedtime. I got to stay up. And I never did anything alone on the boat. If I was doing a night watch, it would have been with my dad. It wasn't me by myself. So I felt really privileged. I'd like to think that I added something to the crew, but of course, looking back as a 10-year-old, I think I was probably more of a liability than, <laughs> than an asset. But it was very exciting. It was very exciting to both set off from Victoria, British Columbia. It was a Vic Maui race and arrive in Maui with the crowds and the cheering. And I think having a kid on board was probably something that the crowd was pretty excited about. Lisa, you have guided whitewater all over the world. In particular, let's go ahead and say the Zambezi in Africa, uh, in South America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. I'd like to go back to that moment, that epiphany, when you realized that you would like to spend your time on moving water, white water. It sounds like you made the transition from lakes to sailing, big ocean voyages to white water. So when was that moment? How did you get into the white water? Quite accidentally, actually. Well, 
I have to back this up because I had just returned from a stint living in Europe, specifically a ski season in Switzerland, which had really opened my eyes to the fact that you could get paid to be outside and play while other people were paying to play. You could actually be the one earning money and doing the same thing. But backing up one step further, I was involved in a frostbite accident, and that was really what changed everything. It wasn't necessarily going from still water to moving water. It was a much bigger realization that I had because of that accident. The accident prompted me to follow my dreams, and my dreams involved essentially everywhere but America. So off I went to first live in London. That was exciting in the adventures indoors, mostly drinking and partying (laughs) and dancing on bars. There were four of us packed into a one bedroom, flat they call it, but it had no kitchen and a toilet down the hallway. And then we decided to take our savings and travel through Europe. And off we went in search of adventure and excitement and basically hot guys and lots of boozy drinks. (laughs) And so ran out of money in Switzerland. We were spending our last Swiss francs on beer, as you do, and laughing about the fact that we were going to need to hitch to her family's home in Stockholm. Our adventure was soon going to end when we ran out of money. And this woman came over and introduced herself to us as uh, Elizabeth Kaufman. She was a former gold medal Olympic skier for Switzerland and had recently returned from coaching in Canada to buy a ski school, a hotel, and a pro shop. And she was looking for English language speaking ski guides. And being Swedish, Annalie knew how to ski, and and because my dad was a ski instructor and we grew up skiing, I knew how to ski, and we certainly spoke English. So she hired us right there on the spot and actually gave us a place to stay that night. And she arranged for us to have train tickets over the border into Germany and to re-enter Switzerland with the proper paperwork. She gave us jobs in the hotel and guiding for her English-speaking guests. Along with that job, we got paid minimum wage, which was nothing a Swiss person would work for, but it was equal to 32 US dollars an hour. And she gave us a place to live, Chalet Victoria, which was in this village called Grindelwald. And while we laid in bed, we looked up at the Eiger Now, knowing the significance of the Eiger, of course, I look at that experience as something I woefully underappreciated. Then by law, of course, it would also require her to insure us against accidents and to give us a local's pass that enabled us to travel freely through the valley on trains and buses. So it was obviously a dream come true. Like I couldn't believe my luck. I couldn't believe that this was actually happening and that I could get paid to ski and get paid so much and to be having so much fun with these guests. And oftentimes they wanted to ski for maybe five or six runs and then just go into the lodge and drink hot toddies, which of course I was professional at by that time. (laughs) So it was so much fun. I couldn't truly, truly believe that a life like this existed. So at the end of that season, I returned to the States because I had to 
to follow up from what had happened in the accident and all of that was playing out and so I had to go for a mock deposition and some other legal things and I knew that I had to continue this outdoor pursuit and getting paid to play so once again my dad turned me on to this idea of going to this outdoor expo in Seattle and I saw for the first time, companies that took people rafting. And I had never been rafting. I'd never even touched a river. I'd seen them, but I'd never been in a boat on a river. And so I started talking to them because they were interesting and young and, of course, hot. So, um, (laughs) sorry, there's a theme. And uh, so started talking to them about rafting and they said yeah well you know the springtime we train train for a couple weeks and then we just um we just put the clients in the boats and we just practice on them and by the middle of summer we get pretty good and I thought oh wow that sounds a little bit unsafe but okay wow and what's that training like and they told me about it and putting wetsuits on and and learning about angles and features of rivers and I thought, oh, okay, all right, that sounds like fun. And went home from that expo and gave it some more thought and opened up the phone book because this is how long ago it was. It was back before the internet. Opened up the phone book in Seattle, Yellow Pages. There are all these raft companies, some of which I'd seen at the expo. And then there was one in Vancouver. And really, I was wanting to get out of the States. And that was the closest thing. I had to stay there because the lawyers were requiring me to stay closer. They didn't like it that I had gone that far. And So I thought, oh, Vancouver, that would work. So I phoned my office. They had a 1-800 number, and this girl answered the phone. And I said, well, my name is Lisa, and I'd like some more information about your upcoming training here. It says in the phone book, it's called Have License, Will Travel. Can you tell me more about that? And she said, yeah, so it's a month long. It, It costs this amount of money, and we really get in depth training. And you're going to learn everything you need to know to pass the exam because you're going to get a license that's recognized internationally. And I said, wow, okay, that definitely sounds like something I would be into. And she said, and really, you need to get up here and take this course. And I said, Um, sorry, what? And she said, well... So my name is Bridget, and I'm taking the course, and I'm the only girl. There's no other girls. And if you come up here, the two of us would be the two girls out of 22 guys. And I said, okay, all right, I'm there. (laughs) So I got into my car and drove over the border and met Bridget, who later became my best friend, and we traveled the world together, guiding and having quite a few really, really fun times around the planet. You're on the trail less traveled, recorded on location in Queenstown, New Zealand. And we are speaking with Lisa Sackville, who has guided all over the world, guiding whitewater as well as skiing and ice climbing. When we return, we're going to talk to her more specifically about that moment when she had an experience and she learned a great lesson from that experience, one of which made her want to travel the world and go to places other than the United States. Lisa, it's not time for a song. What song reminds you of your early childhood adventures? It would have to be something that I would have listened to with my dad. He was a pretty conservative guy, but it was the 70s, and he liked his disco. (laughs) 
and there was some ABBA happening, there was some Captain and Tennille happening, a song, well, I don't even know that it would qualify as disco, but it was Forever in Blue Jeans. <laughs> Do you know the one? <laughs> I could sing it for you, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neil Diamond's Forever in Blue Jeans. Hey there, Mandela here. I'm currently guiding sea kayaking expeditions in Fjordland, which is on New Zealand's South Island's western coast. While I'm living and exploring here, I am constantly wearing my favorite skirt, handmade by a friend of mine in Missoula, Montana. Her name is Karen, and her handmade attire is Karuna clothing. Yesterday, I took a helicopter from sea level all the way to the top of Mount Tudico and stood on the glacier wearing my skirt. In the sun, luckily, but wow. Comfortable, practical, and full of good karma. My skirt is made from a blend of organic hemp and cotton. Karuna clothing is handcrafted with natural fabrics, which soften as they age. It's the first thing I threw into my duffel bag for this adventure. I recommend you visit karunaclothing.com to find out more about this soft, organic, handmade attire. That's K-A-R-U-N-A clothing.com. And now back to The Trail Less Traveled with Mandela. We are recording The Trail Less Traveled on location in Queenstown, New Zealand, and we are sitting in front of a crackling fire, and today I'm interviewing Lisa Sackville. Lisa learned how to run whitewater at a guide school in British Columbia, and that took her to rivers in Africa, South America, New Zealand, and Australia, to name a few. She was also on the U.S. rafting team, and she continues to guide ice climbing and skiing. She lives here in Queenstown, New Zealand, and spends some time in Alaska as well, guiding sea kayaking, mountain biking, and hiking expeditions. Phenomenal woman. Lisa, I'd like for you to perhaps share with us an experience, perhaps an experience where you learned a lesson, a lesson that you could perhaps share with the listener. So I'm guessing you want the toe story. This is kind of a long one. You know, in life, there are those times that later you realize you were standing at the fork in the path. And while the path that you were on seemed like a completely comfortable, safe, perfectly fine path to follow, something in your life happened and you turned off of that path onto a different path. And that happened to me when I was 21, 22, 23, something like that. And my best friend at the time, Sam, Sam and I had decided that we wanted to travel to Europe. It was soon her graduation from university and it was going to be the adventure of a lifetime. And so we got as much information as we could about all of the different countries we wanted to go to and we had maps all over our house and posters of fjords in Norway and the Yangtze River in China and all these exciting places we wanted to see. It was summertime and we were both working two jobs to save for this trip. 
I was working at a gourmet ice cream factory that was owned by a friend of ours, and he also employed Sam, but she wasn't there. I was working by myself. I was working evenings and weekends, and it was a Sunday night in August. It was a hot evening in Seattle, and I was making ice cream, and the phone rang, and it was my brother Scott, and he said, Lisa, I've got some really bad news. I said, well, okay, go. And he said, well, you need to sit down. I said, Scott, seriously, I'm working. You just need to spit it out. What is it? And he said, okay, our uncle, who was a bush pilot in Alaska, had been in an airplane accident, he and his girlfriend, and they were dead. He said, Lisa, you need to come home so that we can go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Everybody's going, aunts and uncles, cousins. I said, okay, I'm going to clean up here, and then I will be home in 20 minutes. And he said, okay. And Sam was at her second job, and between Scott and Sam and I, we were sharing two cars instead of three. So Scott called Sam, and he said, Sam, Lisa's not going to pick you up from work after your shift is over because our uncle has died. We're going to go to our grandparents' house. We're going to drop the car off to you. So we'll be there soon, and then you'll be able to get yourself home. And she said, okay. So I shut off the ice cream machine, and I went into the freezer, which I had already been in and out of uh, probably 50 times that night. And it was a big walk-in freezer with lights on. It was huge. It wasn't small and dark. It was big and bright and a massive big door that you could have driven a forklift through. And... If you've ever seen a commercial freezer, they have these big, long handles that you pull on, and it opens the door, and on the inside of the door, there's a little plunger, like a little disc that you push, and that engages the handle on the outside. Anyway, I pulled the handle on the outside, and I took a deep breath, because inside the freezer, vacillated between negative 30 and negative 60, so really cold. And me just in my sandals and t-shirt and shorts, I would always just run, put it down, and run back out. So I took a deep breath, grabbed my ice cream, and ran in and put the ice cream down. And then everything, now thinking back, turned into slow motion. Because as I put the ice cream down, I heard the door, the foot-thick steel door, slowly close and then engage that clinking, that metal sound that I had never heard because normally the door would slowly close and just rest on its latch. And I thought to myself, oh no, that was not normal. That wasn't a good sound. And I turned around to see the door completely closed, but I saw that little plunger and I thought okay all right well of course this is how it's designed to work and there was a big bumper sticker on the inside of the freezer door that said something about do not panic this door is equipped with safety mechanism so I exhaled and ran over to the door and took my first inhale of ice cold air and that was pretty uncomfortable and then instantly my eyelashes started to freeze and then the nasal passages started to get really cold and icy and I thought oh gosh I gotta get out of here so pushed that little disc but it didn't move so pushing it harder and starting to hit it really quite hard but it didn't move then I picked up the nearest frozen tub of ice cream and started really smashing it and noticed that the disc itself wasn't lined up perfectly and that it was a little angled and it was going at an angle into metal. 
and it wasn't going to open. I started panicking, even though I knew that wouldn't be helpful, but it was just an instant reaction and started yelling and really hitting it as hard as I could. And for about 10 seconds, I was yelling and screaming and saying help, but I was inside of a freezer, inside of a warehouse, inside of a warehouse park on a Sunday night, and no one was anywhere near. And the sound of my voice screaming really started to scare me. So I stopped screaming and thought, okay, all right, I got to get smart. Life and death didn't occur to me yet. Just I got to calm down. So I had a t-shirt on and I took the collar of my t-shirt and put it over my eyes and ears. And I tucked my elbows inside the shirt and put my hands underneath my armpits. And the condensation from my breath instantly froze the outside of my t-shirt. And so there was a bubble of warmth inside my t-shirt. And I just started running. And I hate running, so I was really bummed out that I had to run. So I'm running. I was running in place and thinking to myself, okay, who's going to get me out of this? Because I can't get out of this freezer. And although my friends were clever and Scott, my brother's very smart, the only one I thought that would probably be able to figure this out was Sam, because Sam actually worked there during the day. So I closed my eyes and I put my fingers on my temples because I thought that might help. And I started sending Sam messages because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't really have a better plan. And I didn't know if it would work. I said to Sam, I'm locked in this freezer, Sam. I'm locked in the freezer. I'm locked in the freezer. And Sam, at her second job, was wondering why Scott hadn't shown up. So she called Scott on the phone and she said, Scott, why aren't you here yet? It's been half an hour, 40 minutes. And Scott said, well, Lisa's not back yet. And she said, hmm. And she hung up the phone. And she turned to her boss and she said, I have to go. My best friend's locked in the freezer. And he said, okay. So she ran home. It really was a matter of blocks. She ran home thinking the whole time through what she was going to do. She said, Scott, get in your car. Drive down to Lisa. She's locked in the freezer. And Scott said, okay. And so he got in his car and started driving. She picked up the phone and called 911. And she said, my best friend's locked in the freezer. Can you go and get her out? And the operator said, I'm sorry, uh, how do you know your best friend's locked in the freezer? You're not there. And she said, well, I just know. I know she is. Can you go and just check? And they said, look, it's a big city and we're busy and we just don't go on hunches. We just don't investigate hunches. She said, okay. So here that she is, 20 years old, you know, telling 911 to go and check. I mean, that was pretty big. And 20-year-olds don't often, you know, take such initiative. She phoned the boss and all of her co-workers, the marketing managers and things from this ice cream company, and said, I know it's late, but Lisa's locked in the freezer. Scott's on his way. You have a key. Maybe you'll beat him to the freezer. So she phoned all these people, and they said, okay, all right, we're going. So... Scott drove down there and noticed that my car was out in front, the lights are on, the stereo's on, but the door is locked. And this was pre-cell phone, so he drove away looking for a, a payphone. And he found a payphone, he called Sam. Sam, what do I do? The car's there, the lights are on, but she's not answering the door. And Sam said, Scott, drive your car through the plate glass window. You need to rescue your sister who's locked in that freezer. And Scott said, yeah, okay, all right. 
So he drove back down and broke the window with like a tire changing tool and came in and rescued me. He pulled the door open and I was so glad to see him. I've never been so glad to see anybody in my life. And he said, (laughs) come on, come out. I was aware of what was going on, but pretty cold and it was pretty awkward. As I was jogging in this freezer and had sent Sam messages and she had phoned everybody, she started phoning the ice cream business and I could hear the phone ring outside and I knew that somebody had figured it out. Early on, while I was jogging, it never actually occurred to me that I was going to die. I never thought I was going to die. Even though, if you think about it, alone, Sunday night, a young girl, I mean, I often didn't come home. If I hadn't come home that night, wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. But because our uncle had died, and they were looking for me, they were waiting for me, that was really important, because I don't think they would have looked for me. So Sam was phoning, and I could hear the phone ring, and that was probably two and a half hours into it. And at that point, my feet had frozen first, so my toes were frozen. Once the balls on my feet froze, that was harder to run. So I was almost more stepping from foot to foot, not so much running. And then my calves were frozen, and then once my knees froze, that made things really difficult. Then my legs started to feel very heavy, so more like stomping, more like stomping than running. Once my thighs started to freeze, my quadriceps, I did start to think, I'm not sure how much longer. I mean, we're getting towards the important bits, you know? So Sam um, had called everybody. Scott had phoned Sam when he couldn't get in. She told him to drive his car through the plate glass window. He arrived and came in. So I came trotting out, really <laughs> trotting? That seems that seems rather elegant, really. I was yeah, stomping out like a zombie. And I said, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here, but we should call 911 because I'm frozen. And I took my hand and knocked on my thigh and you could hear it was frozen. And Scott was a little bit freaked out, of course. So he picked up the phone and he called 911. And he said, you know, back then you had to tell him where you were and, you know, what's your address? Scott said, I don't know. Lisa, what, I, don't, I don't know what the address is. So I'm running around trying to find a piece of stationery or something with the address on it. But I'm running through this broken glass, which definitely slice up my feet, but I couldn't feel that at the time. Later, that caused some problems. But anyway, we found the address, and they patched together the call from Sam at this stage now, three and a half hours before, and and they were like, whoa, oh my. All right, we'll send out the team. So even though I was already out, they somehow thought maybe they were going to still rescue me. So they sent two fire trucks and two ambulances and at least two police cars. There might have been more. And at the time they arrived, then all of the co-workers arrived. So the owner and all these, this whole team and of these adults. And they were, of course, freaking out. The owner, it was his very worst nightmare. He hated the freezer. He was a businessman and successful at that, but didn't ever want to go anywhere near the freezer. And so it really was his worst nightmare. And so he's crying and he's got a blanket and he's wrapping it around me. I'm standing there, the emergency personnel, they're running around and Scott's upset. Sam had got a ride from our neighbor and her child and her child was crying. (laughs) 
it's just quite a scene. So they said, okay, sit down. So I sat down and they started asking me questions, trying to assess my level of alertness. And, and I was alert. I was totally aware of what was going on. In fact, I was probably the most calm out of everybody. And then they said, okay, good, lay down, lay down. So I laid down. And they said, we've got to get this IV started. So they wheeled me into the back of this ambulance and turned the heat on. And I just remember four paramedics, two on either side of me. I'm looking up at them and they're sweating because the heat's on. And they're trying to get this IV started in my arm. But obviously my arms were frozen and the veins were collapsing and they were really struggling. And so they tried in the back of my hands, both arms, almost like a pincushion. And finally, they all four looked up at each other and met eyes over me and nodded. And I just thought, oh, this can't be good. I have no idea what they're going to come up with, but this can't be good. Sure enough, out of their chest of drawers, this needle that just looked so long, I thought to myself, where are they going to put that needle? They had me turn my head to the side, and they put it in my neck. I just thought, God, who gets needles in their neck? It was so serious. It was like Frankenstein. So anyway, they got the IV started, and off we went to Harborview, the trauma center in Seattle. And that night, they tried to thaw me out slowly, but of course, they were concerned about that ice-cold blood moving right into my heart and giving my heart a shock and causing a heart attack. So they warmed me slowly, and they did have success with that. It did end up causing some of their techniques and some of the damage done from the exposure compounded the frostbite. So I did lose about 30% of my skin and ultimately then eight toes did have to be amputated. But I spent a lot of time in the burn and plastics unit with patients there that were so much more disfigured. While I had some of my fingertips and my ears and that peeled off, my legs and my feet were well messed up. But the other patients, they had melted faces and noses and no ears or lips. And they were in so much worse shape than I was. It, it was very rare that I spent a moment feeling sorry for myself when everyone around me was in much, much worse shape. I had a lot of time to think about where I was, where I was going, and what I wanted to do. I know I wasn't on the wrong path, but I knew I wanted to change paths and that I could be doing what I had been doing when I was 32 or 42 or 52. I didn't have to be living in the States at that stage. I wanted to live in Istanbul and I wanted to live in Karacha and so many exotic sounding places that I had never been. And that is what really was a deciding factor, was that accident. And I think we all need to continue to slow down and to take a minute to put your whole life into perspective. Take three steps back and look at what you've got, look at what you want, and look at where you want to go and how you can make that possible. I think for some people, they just want to be comfortable. But for me, I knew that was a warning <laughs> warning sign. When you get a little too comfortable, you got to take a step back because you're only going to continue to learn and grow if you make yourself. If you're too comfortable, the adventure stops, doesn't it?
You are on the trail less traveled, and today the trail is featuring Lisa Sackville, and she just shared with us a phenomenal survival story. She was locked inside of a flash freezer for three and a half hours and was able to be rescued by her brother and lost eight toes, but came out of it with a new zest for life and travel. The flash freezer was downwards of negative 30 to negative 60 degrees. Lisa, it's now time for a song. Can you share a song with us, please? Yeah, the song has to be what was at that time in my life, my anthem. It was Rage Against the Machine, Killing in the Name of. But I wasn't a necessarily angry person. It was Seattle. It was the early 90s. That was what we listened to. To be honest, the louder it was, the more chilled I felt, the more relaxing it was. If you had put on something like Lionel Richie, it would have made me angry. But (laughs) Rage Against the Machine was really soothing. We are recording on location in Queenstown, New Zealand, which is on the South Island. And right now we're sitting on the porch with a light breeze, looking at the most phenomenal view of the bright blue lake surrounded by towering peaks of the Southern Alps, which are dusted right now in white frosting which is a little abnormal because it is summertime in New Zealand and this has been a rainy and slightly colder summer than usual. This evening, the Trail Less Traveled is featuring Lisa Sackville. Lisa has been guiding for almost two decades. She has guided all over the world, including the Zambezi River in Africa, Central and South America, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Lisa was a paddler on the U.S. raft team, as well as a skiing and ice climbing guide. Lisa, we're sitting here on the beautiful deck of your home in Queenstown, overlooking the body of water which is called Lake Wakatipu. And towering above Lake Wakatipu, this is Cecil Peak and Walter Peak, part of the Hector Range in the southern Alps of the South Island of New Zealand, which are the backbone of this island. And a little tidbit for the listeners is that the southern Alps of New Zealand are apparently the fastest growing mountain range in the world. Yeah, we've got two tectonic plates smashing into one another, creating this mountain range. The Pacific Plate and the Australian Plate are colliding underneath us, and they are growing at the rate approximately of your fingernails. But we were once at the bottom of the ocean, and this rock tends to fall apart, so we have a lot of erosion and a lot of weather-related erosion that makes these mountains actually not grow. They are growing from below, but they're also falling down from above. Lisa, in a moment I'm going to ask you to describe what you're looking at, but I think it's fascinating that New Zealand was underwater for so long and then got pushed up, and perhaps that's why we have so many endemic species here. Maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit more about New Zealand's travels from the bottom of the ocean back upwards. 
Yeah, indeed. New Zealand was, of course, at the bottom of the ocean for millions of years. The tectonic plates were colliding, moving together, and at one stage then rose up to become Gondwana land, the mega continent. So our UNESCO recognized World Heritage Site, that's what we're looking at out here, that runs down the west coast and into Fjordland, is the closest on earth that you can see now what it might have looked like in Gondwana land. So the beach forests and some of the native species only exist here and they would have existed on that continent, Gondwana land. Our nearest neighbor to this scenery is actually southern Chile. Lisa, you grew up in a household of boys. You're the only girl and your path led you into an industry that is quite often male-dominated. And right now in the States, I feel like this is something that it's important to talk about. Believing in yourself and not letting anybody tell you that you can't do something. You guided all over the world. You guided on the Zambezi and in South America, Central America, Australia, and now you call New Zealand home. I'd love for you to share with us your experience guiding on the rivers of the world and working in an industry that is often you're just one of only two female river guides or maybe the only one. Yeah, absolutely. That was the case. I think now, thankfully, as the generation before the guides that are out here now, we may hopefully have inspired them. I wasn't part of the first generation. There were women ahead of us that were real trailblazers that I remember watching in my early days of guiding that would do things that seemed extreme at the time, like put pink helmets on and wear tutus and race against the boys and beat them. You know, things like that were really, you know, like, wow, oh my gosh, the girls are out here today. By the time I got around, I felt that it was almost reverse sexism. I felt like I got jobs because I was a girl. But I would have to say that didn't happen to everybody. That happened to me, but I don't know that that happened to anyone else. I guess growing up, it wasn't ever mentioned that I had to be smarter. I had to come at things with a different angle. It just wasn't mentioned. You just did it. No one ever told me that I was an equal to a man or my brothers or my cousins or all of my buddies that I was in my bicycle gang with when I was 10. I just assumed and no one corrected me. So I just grew up thinking that I was, I mean, I'm not going to say equal because dudes are stronger, right? They're big. They're way big. If they want to lift that, yeah, go. But I wasn't ever going to stop them, but I would trick them into thinking it was their idea. (laughs) So by the time I got into guiding, it seemed really natural for me to get into an industry that was male-dominated. It seemed really normal to me, and I was in my element. I was quite happy. Sometimes I was the only girl. There were a few companies that I worked for that had never hired a girl. And our skills are on display. You're either in the right place or you're not. It's not like you can fake being a good guide. And because I had the skills, I was viewed as equal. There's a lot of polite gentlemen around the world, a lot of guys that are like, here, let me take that for you. And I always accepted. I thought that was really nice. But if there are four of us lifting a raft up on top of a five stack, I'm one of them. You got to be equal. You got to be just as strong as they are, or else it obviously won't fly up nicely into the air and land flat on the top of the five stack. So, yeah, being a girl has always been 
a benefit, I think. And I've never looked at it as anything, but I'm really lucky. We really don't have to go into the potential drama. It can happen when there are girls. In some companies that I worked for, when there were a lot of girls, girl raft guides, girl guides, uh, ski guides, climbing guides, we are, are a powerful bunch. We are strong in every way. And sometimes when you get a lot of strong personalities and strong people together, and they're all girls, it's not as smooth as it can be. When I'm guiding out there, it's often my clients that point out that I'm the only girl. But we all pull our weight. That's what's important is we're all working together and we all pull our weight. You notice when someone isn't, and it doesn't matter if they're a boy or a girl. Absolutely. I think we're lucky that it's really a non-issue. Mm-hmm. You are equal until you are unwilling to do your job properly. Yeah. yeah. And oftentimes we are our biggest critic with so many things and put that extra effort in to keep strong on your off season. I ask my guests to give tips, you know, advice at the end of the show. And Skip Horner, who is an international adventure guy, one of his tips that's always stuck with me is to keep your core strong and stay fit on your off season because oftentimes on the river, when we come out of the winter and it's spring runoff, maybe you're not feeling your strongest. During spring runoff, you kind of want to be, you know. So people who are entering the guiding industry, be it men or women, it doesn't matter, and they ask me for advice, keep running rivers, keep gaining experience. If things don't go to plan and you're offline, what happened? Debrief with yourself or with a mentor. Mentorship is super important, I feel, as well. And understanding the old salt and the journey that everybody goes on to gain experience and end up whatever you river on that day. Yeah, I think mentorship is super important. I feel like early on I had senior guides that took me under their wing and showed me ways to do things that I wouldn't have been able to understand without their guidance. Answered questions that I had that I couldn't go to other members of the staff and maybe some other senior guide that wouldn't have been as willing to reach down and pull me up with them to their level. I think as a woman inspiring other women and the next generation became really important as I got towards the end of Will there ever be an end? I don't know that I'll ever end. I'll never stop guiding. I can't stop. I have to share this passion. I have to get out there myself. It's part of every cell in my body. But the young girls that come up and they have those big eyes and they're looking at you like, I can't believe that this is what you do for a job. And you just want to sit down and talk to them and and say, if you want this to be your path, and you feel this calling, don't ignore it. Don't ignore this because this is an opportunity for you to shine and to be who you need to be. And if you ignore it, it will, it will haunt you. Yeah. Get out there. If this is what allows you to be who you need to be, you're just lucky that you figured it out. And I agree with you, Lisa. I think that goes for everything. Whether you want to be the editor of Vogue or if you want to be a skydiving guide, just those small steps that we take to get there, taking one step at a time and having patience, infinite patience with yourself. Now, Lisa, I'd like to talk to you about the rivers. We've only really scratched the surface because you have guided all over the world. 
and we talked about how you got into it. You did training in British Columbia, but I'd like to ask you what you have learned from the river and what others can learn from the river, even if you're not a guide, even if you're just someone who's pulled over to the side of the road and you're looking at a section of whitewater, what can you learn? Well, what has the river taught me? The river has taught me everything I know, Mandela. I was who I am before I came into guiding, but guiding and traveling the world as a guide has opened doors that I didn't even see the house. I didn't even know it was there to know to open that door. I have met the most inspiring, beautiful souls that I will ever know. I have been able to work alongside people, live with them, hold their children, eat with them, play with them, and understand their customs and culture in a way that I wouldn't have even known existed before I was a guide. My world view has been shaped by these experiences. As far as the river is concerned, you feel quite insignificant when you're on a body of water, whether it's moving or not. It helps you put your life into perspective. You think you're all that. You think you've got some pretty significant concerns, but once you get onto the river, you forget all that, and all you are is your breath. And it's like this. <laughs> and your fear and the skills that you have learned to control that and to move forward because there's no going back. The river only goes downstream. <laughs> also, what I have learned to do is pay close attention to my sphere of awareness. My sphere of awareness includes the sky, so watching for weather, watching for wind, looking at the clouds, what type of clouds they are, how high they are, where we are in the world, how close we are to a body of water as far as an ocean, what that might do to the afternoon as opposed to the morning. My sphere of awareness around myself and where my body is in relation to danger or safety and how far I am from those things. My sphere of awareness in relation to everyone around me and are they safe and how close to safety are they if they're not safe and looking up and down and all around to see if something were to go wrong, what would I do right now? And I do that on the river, which is actually quite exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> quite emotional. But I do that to a, a smaller extent in everything I do. So what else would you call it? You're in a city that you've never been in. Would you call that like street smarts or, you know, your sphere of awareness? You know who's behind you. You know who's next to you. I was mugged, actually, in Mozambique from behind, the only time I was ever mugged. But I knew exactly who it was, how big he was, and how hard he was probably going to push me. I had a purse slung over my shoulder, a little tiny little bag with my passport and my debit card. He pulled that and pushed me, and the string snapped. 
but I knew it was coming and I put my foot out so I didn't fall. The girl that I was walking with did fall and he started running and I didn't have a plan. But because I knew it was coming, I ran after him. <laughs> like, what a, wow, I'm thankful he was a beginner criminal and he didn't have a gun. <laughs> and anyway, I caught up to him. He crossed the street, rah, rah, honking, and ran out in front of cars across the street and up the scree slope, and I grabbed his ankle. What, what was I thinking? Anyway, I, was, I wanted my passport. I knew there wasn't an embassy, and I, that was going to be drama. So all I'm trying to say is the river taught me to broaden my sphere of awareness and always have that turned on and now I just can't turn it off and I feel like it's served me well. We are recording the trail less traveled on location in Queenstown, New Zealand. We are sitting on the porch of my guest this evening, Lisa Sackville, and we're looking at the Southern Alps and it's been just an honor to be speaking with you today, Lisa. I have a few more questions for you. And one question I sometimes like to ask adventurers is fear. How do you handle fear? Oh, Mandela, that's a good question. Fear, I think it's a decision. Like a cat. We all have more than one life. <laughs> and we've all had some close calls out there and some calls that were really, you weren't going to make it if it weren't for other people around you to pull you out. I think it's a decision though. Every time I've ever been in a life and death situation, I've always said to myself, this is not your day. And did what it took to hold my breath or survive whatever it was that was going on until the situation presented an opportunity, whether that was another person or something that happened that changed that I would live. But I feel like that isn't normal. I don't know. And other people that I talk to that have had close calls. I feel like we have that in common. We have made that decision. I just feel like if you're not willing to die, you're not going to. <laughs> That's how I take fear. Yeah, it's pretty obvious when it's going to happen, but if you're not going to take it as the answer, then you don't. I think you just don't. Lisa, you've traveled and guided all over the world and currently you balance your time between New Zealand, particularly Queenstown, where you have a home overlooking the Southern Alps, gorgeous, and then also Alaska, where you work as a sea kayak, a hiking and mountain biking guide. First of all, what are you looking at right now? I'm facing you and I can see in the reflection of your sunglasses, the Southern Alps. And so that's what I see. But what do you see when you look out from your home right now? There's so much more to what I see than meets the eye. It's really more of a feeling, but I'll tell you what I see. I see snow-capped peaks in the dead center of summer, <laughs> which shouldn't be snow-capped right now, but we're having an unseasonably cool summer. Walter Peak, Cecil Peak, and then the Remarkables and their fresh dusting of snow. The lake and it's cloud shadows as the wind blows the clouds across the lake and the shades of turquoise. But what I feel is an incredible connection to this land and to the people, which I would call my tribe. I came here 20 years ago now and it took me about a day and a half before I was confident that it was love. 
what I felt as an instant and everlasting love, I can tell you 20 years now down the line, I still feel the same way. It is still my most prized possession is the fact that they will legally allow me to stay here in this country, in this tiny little ski town on the banks of Lake Wakatipu, surrounded by the Southern Alps in all directions. There are thousands of glaciers and snow-capped peaks around us on this tiny island in the South Pacific. I like feeling small and New Zealand makes me feel like I am so far away and yet I have the best part of the entire planet and I get to live here as long as I want and explore and play and love, which I do every moment of every day. Beautiful. You have been on the trail less traveled featuring Lisa Sackville, an international adventure guide specializing in whitewater rafting, kayaking, mountain biking, and hiking, among other things. Lisa, it's been an honor to share this time with you, and thank you so much for your energy and your stories. Thanks, Mandela. It's a pleasure. Cheers. Let's end this show with three bits of advice that you'd like to share with the listener. I can boil it right down to one. If you are under 25, channel your passion into what you feel so strongly about that you would consider losing almost your life over. Question yourself. And if you don't have that, then you need to figure it out. You need to ask some questions of yourself. Channel your passion into something that you can get behind and make a difference in the world. Don't let anybody say to you that you're not good enough, that you're not strong enough, that you're not fast enough, that you're not smart enough. You are. We all are. You have to just know that and you have to surround yourself with people who will tell you that. And if they don't, then you need to find new friends. It has to happen. You have to learn to be unstoppable. And then once you pass 25, you will be. You will be and then you will inspire others to be and you really will leave your mark on this world and you will change lives in the shortest amount of time. You will walk down this path. It might just be one conversation and you will change lives. You will inspire others. I want everyone out there to be inspiring each other to be better and to make this planet a better place. So that's my biggest piece of advice. I'm going to sneak in a second one. Can we just say this? Like birth control? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I would say take advantage of all of the opportunities that are out there in front of you and just know that there's a time and a place for having a family, but there's also adventure that could potentially be best if you squished some of that awesome adventuring in early and saved the kids for a little bit later in life when you have a lot more to offer them. Awesome. 
Lisa Sackville, what song would you like to end the show with? I really love sing-alongs. I love songs that everybody can sing to and dance to, and it really helps me get into the mood if I'm going to put in. And this one is an old Bob Dylan song, actually, that's been remade numerous times, and it's called Wagon Wheel. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the world. Subscribe to the free iTunes podcast and visit traillesstraveled.net to see pictures, archive previous episodes, and contact me. I would like to thank my guest for this week, Lisa Sackville. Lisa has been working as an international adventure guide for the past two decades in the field of whitewater, mountain biking, sea kayaking, ice climbing, and alpine skiing. Lisa now calls Queenstown, New Zealand home and balances her time between Aotearoa and Alaska. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. Tonight's episode was recorded under the Southern Alps on New Zealand's South Island in the growing city that is Queenstown. It's the trail less traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. Sunday nights at 6 and Tuesday nights at 10. My adventure tip this week concerns thermals and the layering system when going out on a mission. I've always been a huge fan of merino wool, But from my time here in New Zealand, I can say that it is the perfect material for layering due to its ability to keep sheep musters warm on cold, wet mornings. And the same layer can keep the body cool in the afternoon sun. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar doesn't shred itself.